All right, let's look in our Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 9, and I've titled the message, One Thing, One Thing. I confess, uh, if you were to live with me, I think you would know um, that my family uh, agrees that I'm a pretty optimistic person in general. I'm someone who's always looking down the road and um, going for things, and that can be a real strength, and it can also be a real weakness. You need to live in light of your past. You need to learn lessons from the past. You need to live in the present, be aware of what's going on in your surroundings. And you also need to be looking future, but I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, Some people are more nostalgic than me. They like memories, family heirlooms. Um, I'm just kind of always moving forward Uh, families and business organizations, they all need a variety of personalities. And you know who you are. If you're more kind of in the past looking backwards oriented or in the present where you just live in the moment, or you're someone who's always dreaming about the future, you're probably one of those three temperaments in general. But regardless of your temperament, as Christians, we're all to some degree called to be forward-looking, looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of our section. If you look at verse 28, it speaks of Christ's return. He will appear at the end of the verse a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christians are supposed to be positioned within our walk to look forward to the return of Christ, to have a healthy dissatisfaction with this world. Realizing the world has let us down, it's enjoyable at times, but it really doesn't all the way fulfill. It brings joy, but not enough joy. It sucks people dry. It can also lead to depression to be here, to states of despair. It can be kind of mesmerizing where you don't even want to think about anything else but having a rough time in this world and in this life. Does that sound familiar? The Bible calls Christians, called Christians are called to look forward, to look for a time when you won't be here. So do you think about the end of your life ever? Do you ever think about what it'll be like to cross the threshold from this life to the next When do you expect to die? Do you have kind of a number in your mind where you're going, you know, I think I'm probably going to make it to this or that and live long enough here. You realize it's pretty unpredictable in terms of when it's our time, when it's anyone's time. I was talking, not talking to, I was watching a uh, popular comedian be interviewed and he's popular. He's sort of a curmudgeon. He's saying that now at age 50 with a new child, his first child, he's going to church. And then he was asked and kind of, you know, probed a little bit. So why are you going to church? And he said, well, I don't believe any of this stuff. I guess I'm just going to be a better person. But really, my goal is at 80 to live to 80 and then check out because of overpopulation in this world. I want to do my part. That's just a sad, sad thing for someone to say or even think that that's 
profitable. It's a very selfish mindset. So what is the point of this life? Here's the question. Do you believe that there's more for you in the afterlife? There's something more waiting for you. The Christian's heart, to some degree or another, should shout, yes, yes, there's more. We are image bearers. Ecclesiastes said that eternity is in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. So verse 28, it speaks of having this assurance where you are eagerly waiting, where you're like a child who's pressing his or her nose against the glass, looking at perhaps a new puppy that he or she might get, some new arrival, some prize behind the glass. We are eagerly awaiting for something that's a prize, or that's how we should be. We should be leaning in. The word eagerly awaiting, one word in the original language, apodexomenois, which means to Literally, it's, it's a posture. You're not just waiting. You're eagerly, you're pressing in in your posture towards what's coming. Romans 8 talks about this, verse 19, the creation waiting eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's a creation that's personified. It's rocking and rolling with its hurricanes and with its earthquakes and with these different dynamics. It sort of shows us in a personification that, you know, that things are not all well here on earth. We have a fallen world that's yet to be redeemed for things to be made right. And then you see wars and rumors of wars and those dynamics are here. They're reminders that this isn't it for us. This is the prelude to a life to come. A new heavens and a new earth. We're called to be groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, verse 22 of Romans 8. We're looking for a hope, a future hope. Philippians 3, 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13, the earth's going to be dissolved with a fire heat. And so we're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So we're waiting. This is picking up on the first century Jewish Christian mindset again. That is the key to unlocking the book of Hebrews. I've found to think in terms of a Jewish person or Jewish family that's in transition. They've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but the temple sacrifices are still going on in Jerusalem. So they're looking at that, whether they live there immediately or not. They're looking at the sacrificial system and saying, did I leave something all the way behind that I shouldn't have left? Is this something I should re-enter into? And so the author is pointing people to Jesus and saying the symbolism of tabernacle worship on earth was all really about heaven. It was about heaven, heavenly things. And so you can make the case that the call to eagerly await Jesus' return is a parallel to when the high priest used to go into the tabernacle, which by the way, I heard there was a mock-up of the tabernacle on the Delaney Park Strip. But anyway, this is talking about that tabernacle then. I'm sure there aren't sacrifices going on in that tabernacle now. I'm sure it's not bloody. But uh, this is a picture of a bloody sacrificial 
scene that we find here in Hebrews 9, a bloody one where sacrifices were made, where a high priest, like uh, the high priest Simon the Just is a quote that I looked up surrounding his going into the tabernacle on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he goes in and the Deuterocanonical record says that in 200 BC, he went in there and all of the congregation is surrounding him and watching with bated breath, listening with their ears of the bells that would have been interwoven into his priestly garment to see if they were still chiming so that he's still alive because he's in the presence of God with a sacrifice, with a basin of blood for his own sin and then the sacrifice to be made for the sins of the nation. And then when he reemerged, this is what's recorded that was said poetically, how glorious he was like a morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the most high. An expression like this, I think, is less about the priest and more about the sacrifice. People were excited. They would erupt with joy and probably some form of applause or something to say, ah, the sacrifice has been received by God on our behalf. We are good for another year. Let me ask, do we anticipate Christ at all like that? Are we waiting for his reemergence, the second coming? For him to come and take us home. Do we wait for that? If we were to admit it, we probably don't as much as we should. And it has a lot more to do with whether or not we truly value the sacrifice that was made on our behalf or not. Our sin is an embarrassment. We know that we still have a misplaced affection for the world. We neglect Christ. Our appetites are worldly and we lose our cravings for the Lord. When you lose your craving for the Lord here, then you'll lose your craving for the Lord someday there. Because isn't heaven supposed to be the Christian life raised to the millionth power? Heaven doesn't feel like it'll be a fit sometimes, does it? How can we answer the question about having a growing eagerness for heaven? Well, we need to know one true thing. We need to know that we're ready for heaven. That's what Hebrews is answering this with. We're ready for heaven. If you're a believer, we are ready for heaven. Heaven is prepared for you and you are prepared for heaven. Have you ever sat bedside with someone who's terminal, they know they're going to die, and they are, as a believer, dialed into that reality. I'm going, and I want to go, and I'm ready to go, ready to pass through the veil and go to the other side. Have you ever been there with someone like that? It's amazing. Well, the Bible says that we are supposed to taste of that eagerness Now, even before we're terminal, we're supposed to have an eagerness, have an anticipation, have a dissatisfaction with the world, and we want to go there. But getting our hearts there comes down to grasping one single thing, one single extraordinary event, nothing more and nothing less. 
We have to understand that everything in terms of our preparedness and our affection to go to heaven comes down to grasping and regrasping one thing. Now, there are a few things that are listed here in our verses. We understand Christ came. We understand he died. We understand he's returning. But everything centers on one thing. The only thing that should matter most to us, the one thing that makes you one heaven. So in our outline, one thing prepares you for heaven, and it prepares you in two ways. First, Christ has prepared heaven for you. Christ has prepared heaven for you. Verses 23 and 24. Listen as I read. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is talking about Christ's preparation of heaven for you. Heaven is prepared the way is paved for us to be able to go there and for us to be able to be accepted there and for us to be able to enjoy it there first century jew was always thinking in terms of how to make himself or herself prepared for heaven through temple worship through tabernacle worship to fix their life down here but the author is saying get your mind up there What was happening down here was to portray and symbolize what's going on up there. It's to end our worries about our relationship with the Lord. And this ends with a heavenly perspective, not an earthly one. Not an earthly one. Again, just to review, we've talked a lot about the blood that was shed all over the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a blood saturated place the furniture when it was inaugurated was sprinkled with blood everything was dripping with blood that was to mark separation between a sinful priest that would be doing its operations with the the furniture in there the sacrificial system and holy god so that was necessary it was necessary to sanctify that or set it apart even on behalf of the sinners that were going to be repenting through that process There was bloodshedding. It was necessary symbolically to mark repentance and forgiveness that was given because of the cross of Christ ultimately. Verse 23 is picking right up on this theme. It was necessary for the copies of heavenly things. What was necessary? Well, these copies or these sacrifices that were given in there were examples of something else. It was blood that was shed as symbolism of Christ who was to come. The tabernacle is an analogy of heaven. It's always been about heaven, not about earth. Look at verse 23 again. It was copies of heavenly things. So what was going down on down in earth through the old covenant system was always to point out something heavenly, heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What's being talked about here? Well, 
It's actually a unique picture because you have the sacrificial system on earth was always meant about a heavenly reality. Ultimately, the sacrifices on earth were just symbols. They weren't making anyone right with God. They weren't purifying a soul actually spiritually, but they were symbolizing souls that were going to be purified throughout all the ages because of the shed blood of Christ. That's how you get heavenly things. Who are the heavenly things? I believe the heavenly things are us. We are the ones who are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. What was symbolized in the Old Testament system, what we look back to as the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. We are the, as 1 Peter 2.5 calls us, a spiritual house of a living, we are living stones built as a spiritual house. 1 Peter 1.18, by the precious, ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. These earthly sacrifices, they, they point to better sacrifices. Now, verse 23 can be confusing if you forget that it's an analogy. You have sacrifices of the Old Testament that were happening over and over and over and over again. And the analogy is to say as if there would need to be a sacrifice in heaven for all of you sinners who are going to be going through the turnstile of the narrow road into heaven. There is blood that has bought you as if over and over and over again because people are going to be entering into heaven. So heaven is holy. Heaven doesn't need to be washed up there. But sinners who are going into heaven need to be washed before they go there. Is that clear? That's super, that's super important to understand. This is an analogy. There aren't going to be sacrifices in heaven. And that's quickly clarified by the next verse. We're talking about one sacrifice that is the true better sacrifice that's applied over and over and over again to we who are living sacrifices. We're the ones who've been blood-bought. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Let's stop there. Heaven itself. Now we're talking about Christ going into heaven. When did he go there? I would argue that it's when Christ died on the cross and he said, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. He's there with the father dead bodily, but he's doing the priestly duties in heaven on our behalf. Everything that these copies, everything that these symbols meant matter because Jesus went there on our behalf. If you look again, not verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, saying not the tabernacle worship. This is worship that's in heaven. He's our high priest and intercessor now in the presence of the father. Paul said that the, he condemned idol worship, which was done on an earthly level. In Acts 17, the Levitical system had in like manner become like a, a worship of paganism or a worship of idolatry because Christ had already died and risen. So if the sacrificial system is going on, what is that? That's paganism. It's paganism. So he's saying, this is not that. Don't go back to that. People in denominations these days will 
grow in Christ for a time and then suddenly we'll say, you know, my heart has cooled. So I need to go into certain denominations that will stir it back up again in the name of Christ. But a lot of the soul stirring can be likened to modern day paganism, can it not? And partying and whooping up and trying to try to trying to whoop up spirituality. Well, in this sense, people were trying to potentially go back to a ceremonial system to try to see if they are right with God. And he's saying, no, this is that system was all about heaven. It's all about heaven, not here on earth, not something made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But into heaven itself, into heaven itself, nothing was wrong with heaven. But Christ literally, and I love this, this is a quote. He literally took us into God's presence with him when he went there. He went there on your behalf. You write your name in the heart of Jesus Christ in that moment, as he presents his own shed blood on your behalf as the heavenly sacrifice. Think about that. Your blood bought. When that begins to make sense to you, when that begins to get lodged into your mind, then you want to go there. You don't want to go to a place that you're not going to fit in. You don't want to go to a place where you're not signed up. You don't want to go to a place where you're not bought to be there. Your ticket's not been bought. You're not, you're not outfitted to be there. You don't want to go. It's the analogy of the old Testament. You don't want to go to the wedding without the wedding garment. Christ has outfitted you to go to heaven because he's prepared heaven for you. Do you remember the disciples in John 14 were very anxious when they were with Jesus? Jesus was walking and teaching and not being about himself, but he was basically saying, listen, Peter, you're going to, when the rooster crows, deny me three times. Peter's like, no, I'll never do that. Oh yeah, you will. Judas Iscariot, Satan had entered into his heart or was going to around this time to go into Passover and he's betraying, he's actively conspiring to betray the Lord a friend who had been with him for those three years. The disciples were being warned by Jesus that trouble would be coming. If they've persecuted me, how much more are they going to persecute you, his Christ's servants? These were troubling times. And Jesus himself was predicting his own death going to the cross. But what did he say in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus knew they wouldn't want to go there unless there was preparation made. I'm going to go, but the reason I'm going is to make preparation to come back and get you. Christ has prepared heaven for you, but verse 25 leads us to the next point, which is that Christ has prepared you for heaven. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself 
repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Let's stop there. The text is linking our eagerness for heaven with our preparedness for heaven. Not only are we supposed to know that heaven's prepared for us, we need to know right now we're prepared for heaven. We're prepared for heaven. Heaven is prepared for us now, and we are prepared now for heaven. If you're like me, you are someone who packs at the last minute for a trip. I don't know. I don't know if you're like me or not. I know some people who, through the testimony of the church, are last-minute packers. I'm one of those. Um, I've learned not to be. It's very anxiety-rich to pack at the last minute, I've found, especially if you have a lot of moving parts. But I like to iron, so uh, I just iron later and I throw in the bag. But some people say, no, I like my my ticket, you know, already... Um, thought through on my phone and I'm checked in and I'm packed and I'm at the airport, not one hour early, but two hours before. I've grown to appreciate some psychological well-being in my, my years. Once you get there, you can literally go into autopilot, right? And you can kind of relax. That's the better way to go. That's where we are. We are already set for heaven By the way, understanding that will help you fight against this world, help you fight against your own flesh, help you fight against temptations to not be like you actually are right now. Christ offered himself sacrificially as the better sacrifice, not repeatedly, but once, not like the high priest who entered the holy place every single year. Do you see that? Every year, verse 25 with blood, not his own. He couldn't shed blood for himself, but he every year came in with a basin of blood as a sacrifice for his own sin as a sinner. Christ offered his own blood because he was perfectly innocent and is. The sacrifice of Christ was never to be repeated. It could never be repeated. Verse 26 says, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly over and over again since the foundation of the world. The foundation of the world here, this mention is kind of a young earth reference, I think. It's talking about the fact that soon after the world was created, sin entered into the world. And so if the one sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient, then from the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned, Christ would have had to make atonement for everyone's sins over and over and over again if it was mostly sufficient but not fully sufficient. But the once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient. The Roman Catholic Church gets this Wrong. Our friends, the Catholics, um, still hold to a dogma that's called the perpetual sacrifice dogma that was founded in the Council of Trent in the 16th century. One of their um, spokespersons, Ludwig Ott, from he's a Catholic theologian who died in the 80s. He said this through the 1900s that regarding this perpetual sacrifice dogma, which is basically the Catholic mass, it's the physical 
propitiatory removal of sins, conferring grace for the repentant. It's the grace of repentance. It's propitiated by the offering of the sacrifice God by granting the grace of the gift of penance that remits trespasses and sins, however grievous they may be. So in other words, ongoing grace, that's not just saving grace, but keeping grace in the Roman Catholic teaching depends on the weekly mass. It depends on what they call the miracle of mass. It's transubstantiation, trans meaning to spread and substantiation meaning substance. It's that it's the idea that the body and blood of Christ is spread across. The literal presence is spread across the elements, though the bread and wine stay atomically the same. They call it an unbloody sacrifice that's, that's participating, that where people are participating with it, and they're under what's called ex opere operato. It's through the working of the work. It's the idea that they are getting infused with grace as they participate in mass. This is an error. And I just want to point that out because the text says Christ died once and there does not need to be a repeated sacrifice. Now, Catholic theology would, would say like we do as Protestants that Christ did die once for sins. It's just that this repetition is bringing up that literal death again and again in a way that continues to infuse saving and keeping grace. You're saved by being kept by performing the mass. And through this automatic function, you are keeping yourself in grace. But that's not how we are to think. Again, look, verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away or to annul or to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's put away once for all. When was the end of the ages? The end of the ages was as soon as Christ came here 2,000 years ago, it's like the hourglass was turned over and we are now experiencing the end times. We are at the end of the ages. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. We are coming to the end because we are in the end times. First Corinthians 10, 11. We're at the end of the ages. First Peter 1, 20, the last times. And so we know that Christ has come. He's put away sin. He's fully sufficient. He sacrificed himself. Look at verse 26. It says he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus fitted you for heaven and he's made heaven ready for us and us ready for heaven. Verse 27 is the clearest teaching I know of in the New Testament on the fact that we are going to die and that God is sovereign over when we die. A lot of times you'll hear this verse quoted in an evangelistic outreach for somebody to be saved. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, it's a strong statement 
For believers, one day we are going to stand before the Bema seat judgment. First Corinthians three says anything we've not done for God's glory is wood, hay and stubble, and it will be burned away. And yet we will be saved as through fire. So second Corinthians seven, if you harmonize that with first Corinthians three, the Bema seat judgment, you understand that we'll suffer some level of loss in that moment. As our wood, hay, and stubble is burned away, we'll feel regret, but we'll still be saved because we have a godly sorrow. We had true repentance this end of eternity. We truly know the Lord. We're not someone who will be said, depart from me, I never knew you. We knew the Lord personally. We knew him emphatically. We had a relationship with him. This is eternal life that you may know me. We know him. We are glorifying God with our lives, but there'll be a level of loss in that moment, but we'll be saved. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will be ushered into heaven. For the unbeliever in that moment, there's the greatest of sadness, the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, which uh, time and everything, time and earth flee from that moment. Time stops, Revelation 20, verse 11. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you were sent into eternal flames, the flames of hell. You know, as sobering as that is regarding this appointment in verse 27, this reservation to meet with God at a specific time, this crino, this judgment that will come, verse 27, as sobering as all of this is, this is not really the point of that verse. It's not the deepest meaning of that verse in this Section. Really, the point is that man dies once, that certain things happen once, and it's significant when it happens. And Jesus died once. That's the ultimate thing that's happened with significance in time and history. It's significant from heaven's perspective, and it's significant from earth's perspective. It prepares us for heaven, it prepares heaven for us, and it prepares us for heaven. You see that? It is the most significant event that ever happened. And as significant as it is that we're going to die, this is more significant than that. There's a lot of firsts in this life, right? First baby, first car, first family, first house, first job, first this, first that. You know, first time in junior high, you go through all of that anxiety and freak out. And then you go to college and freshman year and first again, and you're meeting people and everybody's a junior higher again when they go to college. I mean, it's hilarious. A lot of firsts, but there's a lot of repetition with firsts, right? You, you do things over and over again. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of firsts, but there's a lot of repetitious cycles that you're undergoing, but there's only a few things that happen truly one time in your life. You're born once. You're born again once. You die once. Jesus died for your sins once. That's the point. Once, one time. So the sobering significance of standing before the Lord is to remind us that the one thing that ultimately matters happened once sin was predictable. It was repetitive. There was the cycling system of the tabernacle system. It was over and over and over again. And Jesus died once 
to satisfy it all. And he satisfied all of your sins in that one death. Just know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But with the shedding of Christ's blood, there is full and final forgiveness of all of your sins. All of them. The once for all sacrifice. It doesn't stop there. Though Jesus' death was once, his return will come again, and this will be a one-time event as well. Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The whole point of grasping that he died for your sins, the sins of many, the millions of times that you sinned, and for all of those who ever would believe there is a particular redemption for that sin. Isaiah 53, 12 says that Jesus predicted of Jesus dying for the many. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. So it's being hearkened back to here in the mind of the author. Died for the many once. He offered himself for us. Do you see that in verse 28? Christ having been offered. It doesn't mention the word death here. Death is mentioned throughout this chapter, but offered. And that's to point out that he sacrificed himself once. For us, there's very, there's a very intimate sentiment here in verse 28 to bear the sins of many. Who's part of the many? We are. And this same savior will appear a second time. He's going to come back. Don't be thrown by the word save. He's not dealing with our sin. Verse 28 says at this point, he's saved us. We are saved, signed, sealed, and delivered. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who died now returns to save us. The word save here, sozo, is taken in in the sense of final salvation or rescue from this world. Remember, we're supposed to have an increasing dissatisfaction and dislike with this world. Our love for the world should be in the decreasing category and our love for Christ in anticipation of heaven should be increasing in this life. That's why we should thank the Lord for our aches and pains. (laughs) Wow, it hurts to be here. I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to be there with Christ who rescues. He's coming to deliver. This is the consummation of the ages. This is when we are glorified. Romans 8, 29. Those who are justified, sanctified will be Glorified will be just like Jesus Christ with no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sin, no more Satan, no more demons, no more crying. We're there. We're in heaven with him when he takes us home. The first century Jewish idea was to try to stay religious, to stay prepared, but we're supposed to instead be eagerly awaiting him because we are set for heaven. Every human being dies, but Jesus' death is distinctive to to lodge in our hearts so that we know we're going there. 
It's like a doctor who was finally willing to perform the surgery that no one else would perform. And once he did, he paved the way for people to be made right, for people to be healed. That's what Jesus did for us. He bore the sins for us. You see that in verse 28, to bear the sins of many. We need to grasp and regrasp this. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we see the city that is to come. It's a reminder to remember. There was a poet who was named William Cowper or William Kuyper, depending on how you pronounce it, from England. He was in the 1700s and... He came under the pastoral care of John Newton. Remember John Newton who wrote and authored Amazing Grace? He was the slave owner who became a convert who once he was converted by the amazing grace of the gospel, not only wrote that song, but was a pastor. And he pastored in England, William Cowper. And William Cowper was a poet, sort of a Renaissance person, but he was very depressed. He was despondent in times known to be suicidal. Well, William Cowper wrote these words once he became a Christian. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their, what? Guilty stains. I love this. The dying thief rejoiced to see, this is the thief on the cross. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. He's watching Jesus bleed out for him. What a perspective. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Knowing we are washed, that's what makes us ready. The dying thief was ready. Are you ready? Heaven has been prepared for you. And you have been prepared for heaven. Heaven. 